Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host Edmar Ferreira will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Dr. Eric Schur, CEO and co-founder of HEPA TX. He is a tenacious, creative innovator whose chief joy is bringing new ideas to life for patients suffering from difficult-to-treat diseases. Dr. Schur has been innovating in the life science industry for 25 years, and he has abundant startup and emergency company experience with many early-stage companies, including Caledon Inc. and Asthmatics Inc. Hello, we are here today with Eric from Hepatics. They are doing a really interesting thing in regenerative biology, which I think you guys are going to love. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much, Edmar. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to chat about what we're doing. Yeah, I find it always amazing when I talk to founders that are like, have a lot of experience in the field and keep creating new things like yourself. It's really inspiring to see people who are always bringing new things to the market. So tell us a little bit about the future. What the future looks like when you guys are really, really successful? What changed in the world? How the world looks like when you guys like crush it? Yeah, that's really fun to talk about because it is, you know, it's the thing that we're reaching for when we start these kinds of adventures. And so what we started out with our, our Grand Slam home run brass ring thing, if we could reach it, would be to be able to eliminate liver transplantation in the sense that, you know, it's a big operation and it'd be nice if you, you know, had a failing liver, if you could get that fixed with just an infusion rather than having to go into surgery and spend a couple of weeks in the hospital and all that good stuff. So that for our specific company, you know, that's the goal is to, uh, you know, replace liver transplant with a simple cell infusion. And so what, what I think if you look even broader and wider than that, uh, beyond liver, we and others in the regenerative medicine field who are looking to get to a point where we can actually repair tissues with non-invasive methods, basically, so that if you have a kidney that fails, you can fix it. You have a liver that fails, you can fix it. If your you know knee cartilage goes out, you can fix it rather than relying on a, a, a drug or surgery in order to do that. So, you know, a, a day when it's much easier to recover or get past uh, chronic illnesses than, than uh, it is today. This sounds amazing. This is a future that I would like to live in. <laughs> I hope we get there. I hope we get there. Sounds, sounds amazing. Where you guys are today? Like, what's the state now of the company? What, what stage now that you guys are in with this long journey? A tiny bit of history. Hepatics was was formed about five or six years ago. We spun out of Stanford University, uh, licensing some technology from a professor there, Gary Peltz, who is a, a liver geneticist, basically. And and what we did was he took a technology that actually takes stem cells from fat tissue, and and we can grow them out in large quantities, and and then turn them into liver-like cells. And, and those can in turn be transplanted to treat liver disease. So it's a, a step on the pathway towards replacing liver transplant with a cell infusion. So along that pathway, you know, we, we've got the technology licensed and we've set up a lab operation in, in Palo Alto, California, 
and have done a, lots of the uh, preclinical work to demonstrate that we can make these cells. So, you know, we can make them in big batches and they come out the right properties, which is a requirement of the FDA. And the other requirement for that from the FDA before we actually try this in humans is that we test this in various ways, you know, both in, in, in cell culture as well as in some uh, rodent models to, to get some sense for, you know, is it safe to do this in people? And is there a reason to think it's going to address the kind of disease that we're looking at addressing? So we're getting to the latter part of that last process of this preclinical testing. And we'll be able to finish that probably in the next, you know, year, year and a half. And thereafter, uh, assuming it all goes according to plan, we'll, we'll be able to test our first product in humans and, and determine if we're on the pathway towards uh, this future we were just talking about. Oh, this is pretty exciting. There is like, just to people, to give people a little bit of, of perspective, how many liver transplants around what number we're talking about, like in the United States today? Yeah, it, it's a really interesting uh, question there because, you know, it. I um, started working in liver disease, you know, seven or eight years ago. Uh, I had a, a long history in cancer research, actually, before this. And um, I was actually astounded by the amount of liver disease that's out there. And it turns out that, that you know, it's literally in the millions of people who have liver disease. And, and, oh, and then the, Yeah, millions of people. And yeah. to, to answer your question, there's only about 8,000 liver transplants that are done each year in the U.S. So there's this enormous gap between the number of people who could use a liver transplant and the number of livers that are being transplanted. Yeah. And do we have any idea of how many of those transplants go wrong or like complications of the surgeries, like they're the percentage base or something like that? Yeah, it's a it's a definitely a, a curative operation for people who have late stage liver disease. So it's a good thing liver transplants work, but they only work about seventy percent of the time. So oh, you know, there's thirty percent of the yeah. people who get a liver and they they have problems. Yeah, because with your approach, like even if like of course surgery is it's life saving, but the act of doing a surgery itself is a risk in a lot of aspects, right? So yep. by doing your approach, like the risk would be lower just by the fact that there's no surgery, like major surgery involved, which is pretty interesting. And there's a lot of things that go, go wrong in a surgery, a lot of things after the surgery and the costs involved in doing it. There's a lot of the whole, if you don't have an option, go for the surgery, of course. Thanks God that we have surgery. But if we can create a way of not doing the surgery, just by not doing the surgery will be increased like the amount of patients that's going to be cured and they're going to reduce costs and we're going to make just so much better uh, situation than needing to do a, a surgery in the first place. This is really interesting in that sense. How would be like the procedure of actually using the treatment? It would be like an injection? How, how, would, how it would work? So, so we're planning on doing this as an infusion into the bloodstream. So it's, 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 oh. it, and it works. We've done this in, in animals and it, it's effective. And so it's a pretty easy thing to administer. Yeah. This, this would be like a lifesaver in a lot of places. Like, because when you think about even outside the West, there's a lot of places that where you don't have enough equipment, you don't have enough 
and of surgeons to do that and the whole supply chain of taking the organ and then delivering it to a patient. There's a lot of things involved on that. Based on that, not only not doing the surgery, but also if you don't need all the, the infrastructure to do the surgery, it's a win as well. Like for countries that don't have the whole infrastructure to do the surgery, don't have enough surgeons to do the surgery, don't have the infrastructure to get the organs and everything involved on that. Like even after you factor in the United States and in Europe, you're going to save a lot of lives in places where there's like a constraint on the infrastructure itself as well of doing the surgery, not only on the, on the organs, but the infrastructure itself, like with just infusion that people can do in all over the world. So this is, this is an, an extra step toward like saving a lot of lives in places that even if they had the organs, they would not have enough surgeons or enough hospitals to do the transplantation. So this, this is really, this is really inspiring. So how, how did you decide to get into this? Like how one goes around thinking about fixing livers? What, how did you start this path? <laughs> like Sunday yeah. morning, you're like, huh, I should figure out a way to like fix people's livers and not doing surgeries. I'm going to do that. And then it's Monday, you're doing it. Like how, how did you come to this, this idea and how did you start this? Yeah. So, so my background is as a biologist. So I've been involved in, in research for, you know, the, my, my whole career. And, uh, a lot of it was in, in kind of stem cell research. So I've had a, a feeling over the years that there was, you know, more we could do with stem cells than, than actually was being done with them. There's been a lot of research in the field, but it just really hasn't made it to, you know, patients very well over the years. And so, I, I was involved with a program at Stanford that gave me a chance to look at a bunch of technologies there. And, and this particular one that hepatics has been built on uh, resonated with me because first off, liver disease was a big problem. And, and so in order to translate, you know, a technology from an academic kind of environment to, to people, there has to be a market for that technology. You know, it has to be something that's going to be useful at the end of the day. And there is a big need in liver disease. And so we felt that there was a match between both the need out there, liver disease, and the number of people who could use this kind of treatment and the, the things that these stem cells could do in the sense that these cells are able to kind of deliver a, a way of treating complex diseases like liver disease that you can't really do with a drug. And so there is a, a really kind of an interesting scientific opportunity to show that there's a sort of transformative medicine that, that we can bring to people, you know, if we can succeed with the development. Yeah. And how did you, you met your, your co-founder? Like you were met before, was during this research phase? How, how did it happen? Yeah, it was it was during this this program at Stanford. Actually, uh, Mark is a um, Stanford graduate. He's an MD PhD, and so he has a, a PhD in stem cell biology. That you know, so that jived with with my experience as well. And he's also an MD, a hematologist, so he treats patients. And the two of us, you know, kind of made a nice combination of of you know somebody like myself with a lot of basic science experience. 
And Mark, who has, you know, clinical experience in between us, we have a lot of regulatory experience and, and it, it's just a nice, nice fit in terms of bringing this uh, technology forward. Why start a company? Like I see a lot of like uh, scientists and people with like deep scientific backgrounds that would never touch that. So <laughs> where this, this desire and, 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 and this, let's say this, this will to get into the actually doing a business came from like how did you how did you get into it like where 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 did it came from yeah um so i've been in the biotech industry you know basically my whole career and i've learned over that time that the work that's done in universities as interesting as it is is often not not something that you can you know commercialize easily so it, a lot of it is done and then it ends up in journals on you know bookshelves, basically. And it requires the industry, you know, people who have commercialization experience to actually make something useful out of it that can be, you know, brought to actual users. And it's not just biotech, but the biotech industry, you know, is a, is a good example of, of an industry that bridges that gap between, you know, an academic project and generation of new knowledge and actually applying that knowledge to people to make it useful, you know, all that grant money that's spent trying to, to leverage that and uh, bring useful products to people. How do you think about uh, working together with the research institutions? You guys license the technology from them. How did you find initially those technologies to license? How that, that process worked for you guys? Well, in, in our case, it was really a direct interaction with Stanford. And, and, and they've done something that was, you know, kind of unusual for universities. They, they've implemented programs to help commercialize the technology that their faculty is developing. And, and I think they're actually, you know, kind of one of the leaders in that respect. So this particular program actually got teams of industry people like myself and Uh, matched them with academic people like Mark and gave us an opportunity to look at all of their technologies and develop a commercialization plan for that technology. So kind of an unusual sort of translational program for a university. Yeah, and, really smart. Yeah. yeah. Smart. Really, really, really well done. I think that more research institutions should think about like doing that. Like it's a good way to bring more innovation to the market for sure. Yeah, that, that model is spreading, but Stanford definitely was kind of one of the early ones in it. Yeah, yeah. And when you go around like explaining what you are doing, what people tend to get wrong? Like what's the most common like misconception when you explain what you are doing? Yeah, it's uh, a pathway. So we'll probably have multiple products before we get to that final stage of being able to actually replace a transplant with an infusion. Uh, so our first product is probably not going to do that. It's going to be for people who are acutely ill and it'll, you know, give them a, a chance to survive and perhaps get a transplant or maybe their liver will recover. It's, that happens too. And a lot of people get tripped up in thinking that we are, you know, what we're making right now is actually going to be replacing the liver completely with one infusion and, and it's a little bit hard to explain that that's going to take a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, f I find interesting, like when I talk with deep tech companies that it's always 
a good idea to have like intermediate products because in general, the vision and the level of technology is so hard and it will take so long that if you can along that path, do some intermediate products or intermediate steps in general looks, looks really great because if you need to wait all that long time in research and development to actually deliver a, a product, like you are like, it's so hard to do everything, to raise money, to do everything because you don't have like nothing in between. But if you can deliver something in between, it tends to work like really, really well because you got like building those steps with products, trying to bring things to market. And at the same time, you have that long-term vision like guiding the end. I love, love it. I love when, when I see deep tech companies do that because I think it's like a really strong strategy to, to actually achieve that that end, that dream. Really awesome. Yeah. 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 It, it, it's kind of like borrowing the term from the software people and MVP, you know, minimum yeah. viable product. So yeah, you kind of got to aim at that and try and get it out there so that you can stay alive to do the next one. Yeah. The bad thing with deep tech startups that even the MVP, it's, it's, it's really hard. Like even the MVP is going to be like, there's, it's more like a VP than an MVP. The minimum in it's not that minimal. The minimum in it is is far more than the most minimal in software. So there's there's still this. It's still like an achievement, a technical achievement, like yep. to do even the the MVP usually in, in deep tech. So when you think about like building in in biotech and in deep tech, like what advice would would you give for a founder that wants to start getting into it? Yeah. Um... I think you have to have the passion to do it as kind of the first ingredient there. And then, then I think the next ingredient is to not think about it too much and, and dive in, you know, start yeah. doing it. You know, you do have to have some level of expertise in whatever it is that you're going to go into. If, uh, otherwise, it would be kind of a suffer fest, but it's really kind of just get going, you know, go, go do it and, and don't expect it to be easy and be persistent. Now, those are kind of the really the key ingredients for I think this as I'm sure any startup. And when you started this journey, what did surprise you the most? What was the things that you learned or what was unexpected when you started this company that came clear to you now or you were wrong about or are just like surprising that you changed your mind on during the, the course of the company? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I came at this from a biologist scientist standpoint, you know, that sort of upbringing, so to speak. And, you know, I'd had some exposure to interfacing with commercial people, you know, the, the, the business world and the finance world in the past. But the gulf between how those two worlds think is really pretty, pretty big. And, and so trying to think in both the worlds is, is a real challenge. You know, they, they have reasons why each side does it the way they do it. But from a scientist, you know, to try and look at the world the way a finance person does, it's a surprisingly large jump. Yeah, it's a different, different world zone there, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah makes sense. Makes sense. And when, when you see like the future and the next steps that you guys need to take, what is the the like the critical path, like the riskier path looking forward? What do you think that the the, the the like the if you would pick just one next step, like what would be like the the riskier one? Yeah, so you know, probably any any biotech company 
you talk with who's doing a therapeutic product will tell you that it's going to be when you go, you know, first try it in humans, is it going to work? Yeah. You know, that's that's probably the biggest risk point. It's just it's very hard problem to cope with. And you try to make sure you're not going to hurt anybody in the process. But trying it in people is probably the the next, you know, hardest thing. The rest of them, I think, you know, they're kind of it's a process of coming up with the next iteration on on that product. And and once you have, I think, some success in, in the clinic, then the next one will be a little bit easier to decide what, what that product needs to look like. And when you think about the future, like supposing that we go and we can have it approved in humans, like you think about commercializing it yourself, you think about licensing it to some company, like what, what you guys are thinking about in terms of like the business side of it? Well, I think with this particular product, our first one, which we call HX001, it's an it's a treatment for acute liver failure. So patients who show up in the hospital and they're very sick and they get an infusion of this, that which we think will help them more of them survive than do right now. Probably to license that and partner it and develop it, either sell it outright or or co-develop it with a, a bigger pharma partner will be what we do with this first one. And then thereafter we might try and do these in-house. Yeah. Yeah. I think that this is makes makes a lot of sense as well. I think this is this is the the, the way to go. So we are we are heading to the end. I have just like a couple of last questions to you to to finalize it. So first, do you have any recommendations of a book, movie, TV show, anything that that you like to us? Oh, geez, yeah. Uh, there's a book a book called Do the Work. I'd have to go and look for the author for you. If you give me a second, I can look and find out who that that is. Sorry about this. I, it's it's I, uh, Stephen Pressfield, one? Stephen Pressfield, exactly. Yeah. That's the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great that book. Would be great book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, I think that's the same guy who wrote The War of Art, I think, which yep. is pretty, pretty good. Pretty good book. Pretty good drawings as well in, in, in his books, usually. So some books that have good. Yeah. He's good. He's really good. I like it. Yeah. And if you are able to send a message to, Anybody in in the world, like just one message, but for every single human being on earth, like what would be your message? Try risky things and don't be afraid of trying those risky things. There's a lot of learning in it. Oh, this is so cool. Yeah, I like this one as well. Yeah, it's nice. Most More people should risk things for sure. Like most of the, we live in a world that, we could be doing so much more like asymmetric bets most of the time where like like the thing that would happen would be like or either a really good return or just nothing happens. So it's worth taking the shot most of the time to, to yeah, put something I, risky. Yeah. I, I think I think uh, we, we tend towards being too risk averse and trying to eliminate risk completely in our lives. And it's just not really feasible. And in fact, I think it's it's counterproductive. People should be willing to be willing to fail, you know, be willing to go out there and try it and, and fail and realize that you can come back and try again and succeed the next time. Yeah. Great. This is this is a great thing to, to think about. Thank you so much, Eric. It was like a big pleasure to have you here. Uh, and I hope that in, in a couple of years we can do a, a next round, just seeing how much you guys evolved. I'm cheering for you guys. I hope that someday we'll, we'll 
live in a world where we don't not need liver transplants anymore. It's going to be amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you for the conversation, Admar. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.